from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who began worshiping this morning, no matter where we are in the world, that we could be changed, that you could bring us what we need to give us wisdom and courage for the facing of these days. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, looking out our living room window at one of the magnificent magnolia trees in our backyard. As I uh, studied the contour and shape and, and color of that particular tree, I noticed something growing throughout its leaves and branches. It was wisteria. And wisteria vines had not only overtaken that particular magnolia tree, but they also took over uh, basically the whole back portion of our yard. The main vine was as thick as a tree root, and it had embedded itself in the ground, uh, shooting vines in every direction. Our capable facilities director, Craig Anderson, texted the landscape company we use for the church campus here at the corner of 16th and Peachtree, and we use them at the Tuttle House, the church manse as well. He asked them to come and remove it, and so they scheduled a time. Well, last Sunday, following worship, I had this uh, incredibly strong impulse to try and remove the wisteria myself. Honestly, I'm I'm not very good with uh, garden tools or landscape equipment. I didn't even know what wisteria was until last week. Uh, Yard work is typically something I try to avoid. But something in me last Sunday after worship uh, compelled me to, to grab clippers and an axe and some gloves and a ladder and get to work on removing this plant. I went after it with, with gusto and with enthusiasm. And let me tell you, it felt so good to untangle the wisteria from the magnolia branches. It felt so good to cut it out from the shrubbery. It felt so good to pull it down from all the trees. It felt so good to dig it out and uproot it. It felt like I accomplished something more than yard work. It felt like I accomplished something I needed to accomplish on a deep emotional and spiritual level. I've tried to pay attention to that feeling this week. It was this deep, deep longing to resolve something. This deep longing to be freed of something, to be untangled. 
Of course, we are now 121 days into the coronavirus pandemic here in Atlanta and across the nation and across the world, and it has yet to be resolved. In fact, the opposite is happening. Infection numbers continue to climb across the nation. There is so much in our lives and in our world right now that remains unresolved. Been thinking about questions that, that point to the lack of resolution in my life and in the lives of so many of us. Am I willing to acknowledge that this day, as hard as it is, is still a gift from God? Am I able to find courage and, and wisdom and hope to face the challenges of the day? Questions like, will the children be back in school come fall? What if they aren't? What will I do then? How will I work and homeschool them? Is my job secure? Will my income remain the same? Will our savings run out before I find a new job? When will we be able to finally have our wedding that we've now postponed two or three times? When will we, will we be able to have the funeral? Is my retirement still on schedule? Will I be able to see my grandchildren? Is it a good idea to go and see my grandchildren? Is it safe to even leave my house? How can I not see my spouse for two or three or four weeks or even more while they're in the hospital or in rehab? Should I let my kids play with their friends? By going to this place, did I expose anyone to COVID? When will we return to worship? Should we still take the family vacation we have been planning? Will my mental health deteriorate even more as this thing presses on? Will I be able to kick these habits, even this addiction that has been formed during this mess? Will our national political discord resolve? Will racial inequalities resolve? Will uncertainty resolve? So much of life is unresolved. So much is tangled. So much is in conflict. So much is in flux. So much feels completely and totally out of our control. If you're like me, this is the, the head and heart and, and body space in which we find ourselves today. This is who we are as we turn toward the scripture that's set before us this morning. And as we turn our attention to that scripture, what we will actually discover is a first century church in flux. We find a church living in a political environment that is toxic and violent. We find a church that is starting to experience persecution. We find a church that is actually in conflict. We find a church that has a significant issue that has yet 
to be resolved. Allow me to set the scene. For the first 14 chapters of the book of Acts, we read about how the Holy Spirit has breathed life and has started this movement that we call the church. And that movement begins with Judean Jews and it spreads to Hellenists or or Greek-speaking Jews. And then over the past four chapters, this story has taken a dramatic turn as the Spirit begins to touch the hearts and the minds of Gentiles, of outsiders to the Jewish community. You remember the story from a couple of weeks ago regarding the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch and and even from last week, the conversion of Cornelius, the, the Roman centurion. And the end of chapter 14 tells us that Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, which is in Syria, sharing with the newly formed church there how God had, quote, opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. And so as chapter 15 begins, we realize that we spent the last four chapters as witnesses, as observers of what God was doing in the Gentile world, bringing people to faith. And here is the essence of the conflict. Some Jewish Christians who were Pharisees had made their way to Antioch from Judea. And they were challenging Paul and Barnabas because the male Gentile converts were not made to be circumcised and all the converts, men and women alike, were not quote unquote ordered to follow the law of Moses. The dissension and the disagreement between the two parties was not small and given the young age of the church, a serious break or division between factions could undo the whole movement, could upset the whole gospel. The uncertainty was so palpable and the disagreement so strong that it needed to be adjudicated by a higher authority. So Paul and Barnabas and some others go back to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders who were leading the first church. And the question before the leadership was was really straightforward. Do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to become Christians? And so Peter, in this text, also called Simeon, he gives testimony what he had seen amidst the Gentiles. He was giving testimony what he had seen with their conversion. And then Paul and Barnabas, they have a turn to speak and and they make their case and they share story after story about how the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And after hearing The testimony from these three men, the apostle James opens up his Bible. He opens up his scripture and he actually quotes the prophet Amos. And he quotes a section of Amos that speaks of God's will to bring all nations into the household of God, to bring all people into the family of God. And then James speaks, he makes his ruling He says, I've reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city, for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath 
in the synagogues. In other words, what what James is declaring is that Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to become Christians. They are encouraged, however, to unify with Jewish Christians around the ethical commitments that would have them avoiding any behavior or any activity that would even hint of idol worship. And so in this season, as we continue to contemplate what it means to receive our second wind so that we may be a second light people in this time of uncertainty, in this time of conflict, in this time of flux. I would like for us to turn our attention to the character, to the man known as James, who appears in Acts 15 as sort of the chief justice, as the lead leader, as the head apostle. And I'd invite all of us to pay attention to at least three decisions James makes in the midst of this particular uncertainty that's taking place in Acts 15, in the midst of this particular conflict, in the midst of this change and this flux, to pay attention to three decisions that he makes within this milieu. For as we face our challenges... As we face our moments, perhaps we can make similar decisions to James. Perhaps we can make decisions like the ones he made in Acts 15 that help move us toward discerning what faithfulness means in our time. What faithfulness means in the midst of uncertainty, conflict, and flux as we claim our identity as friends of God and as followers of Jesus Christ. Well, the first decision that that James makes is to actively listen to Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. He makes the choice to listen to these eyewitnesses who have seen what the Spirit had been up to within the Gentile community. James wants to hear from people. He wants to listen to people who see what God is doing up close. He wants to hear their testimony. James trusts these three. He trusts them to give an accurate account as to what God was up to. I would encourage all of us, all of us, to have witnesses in our lives. I'd encourage all of us to have witnesses that we turn toward, that we close our mouths and we listen to who can give an accurate testimony of what God is doing in real time. One of the great gifts in in my life is a group called the Community of Pastors. These are 25 men and women who pastor large Presbyterian churches around the country. And we typically meet in person for three days, twice per year. But in these times, we've missed our most recent time together and we've been relegated to Zoom and emails and phone calls. But, but these pastors, this group called the Community of Pastors, these are my go-to people when it comes to discerning what God is up to in the church and what God is up to in the world, and what God may be up to in my life. Their wisdom and experience is something that I want to hear. 
Just a few weeks ago, I I spent time connecting with my pastor friend, Amos, who is the senior minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Dallas, Texas, a congregation very similar to ours here in Atlanta. And I wanted to know his thoughts and his wisdom on regathering for worship. I I wanted to know his his perspective and what he was doing to address racial injustice and, and how he was finding encouragement from God during these difficult days of ministry and what was challenging for him him and what was exciting to him and where he thought God was moving and working in in his church and, and what God was teaching him during those days. I wasn't looking for information. I wasn't looking for data. I was after testimony. I was after witness. And so who are the witnesses in your life? You're not necessarily going to find them on, on cable news Who are the witnesses that you can turn toward, who that you can listen to, to discern what God is doing in the church, maybe what God is doing in the world, perhaps even what God is doing in your life, who can speak into your life with discernment and spiritual wisdom in in times of flux, in times of conflict, in times of uncertainty. Make time to listen to these witnesses who can speak into your life. The second decision James makes is to turn toward the scripture. He actually opens up the Bible or opens up the scroll or or knows it by heart. And he quotes a piece from the prophet Amos, the ninth chapter. And this word is an additional word that is spoken to the assembly that allows them to determine and to confirm that Gentile inclusion is actually something God has wanted for a very long time. The scripture, the word of God, validates the testimony of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas as the church transforms into more of an ethnically inclusive community. James goes to the text. He goes to the scripture. He knows that in these moments of uncertainty, in these moments of flux, in these moments of conflict, that he needs to hear a word from God, a word from our sacred pages. I was thinking about the Bible this week and I I thought about a story about a young girl named Mary Jones who was born in Wales in 1785 in a little hamlet situated in an area called Gwennet, about eight miles east of the Irish Sea. Despite her family's humble and uh, simple station, her father was was a tradesman, he was a weaver. Uh, despite their simple station in life, Mary actually learned to read. Remember, there was no public or mandatory education at the time. So in Wales, it was the church that created something known as circulating schools where parish clergy or an educated layperson would venture out into rural villages and towns to teach children and sometimes teach their families how to read. The primary textbook, of course, was the Bible. But owning a Bible was expensive, and personal copies of the Bible were hard to come by. The nearest Bible to Mary's home was actually at a farmstead two miles away. So anytime Mary wanted to read the Bible, 
she would have to journey to that farm, two miles there and two miles back, which she did quite frequently. She actually started this habit when she was about eight years old. Eventually, Mary learned that personal copies of the Bible in Welsh were for sale in Bala, which was the closest urban district to her home. It was about 25 miles across rugged and mountainous terrain. Even so, Mary Jones was determined to own her own Bible. And over the course of the next six years, she, she saved three shillings and six pence, which covered the cost of a new Bible. The year was 1800. Mary, now 15 years old, began the laborious trek to Bala. It was extra difficult because Mary had no shoes. She made the journey there totally barefoot. And when she finally arrived into the city, she immediately went to see the Reverend Thomas Charles, the minister who was selling copies of the Bible. And to her utter disappointment, he explained that all the Bibles he had left were already spoken for. But he was so moved by her faith and by her desire that he arranged for her a place to stay, some provisions, until a new shipment of Bibles was delivered. Once they came, he sold her three copies for the price of one. And Mary Jones traveled back to her home, barefoot again, singing hymns all along the way. Friends, here in 2020, there's some good news. You don't have to travel 25 miles to access a Bible. It's on your nightstand. It's on your bookshelf. It's on the internet. We have access to God's word. And my hope is that all of us would have the instinct of James to open up the scripture to speak to us when we face times of conflict, when we face times of uncertainty, and we, when we face times of flux. My hope is that we possess the kind of desire Mary Jones had in the quest for her own Bible. My, my hope is that all of us would go after the word of God the way Mary Jones went after the word of God because it is still speaking afresh to us today. In our community of faith, we confess that the scripture, the Bible, is the rule and authority of our life and our faith together. The scripture, we say, is the unique and authoritative witness of what God has done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even though its words were composed and, and choreographed thousands of years ago by human beings who were a product of their time and social location, God still speaks a fresh word to us through the word of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually believe that God speaks a word of comfort in times of trouble, a word of challenge in times of complacency, a word of hope in times of despair. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we believe God speaks a word of forgiveness in the midst of sin, a word of clarity in the midst of confusion, a word of covenant community in a world of individualism and isolation and a word of liberation in the midst of oppression. 
First, James makes the decision to listen to witnesses. Second, he makes the decision to turn toward the scripture. Third and finally, James confirms, he makes the decision to confirm the fundamental idea at the heart of the gospel that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. This is why he does not want to make it hard for anyone turning toward God because it's not about what we do. It's about what God has done. It shouldn't be hard for people to turn to God. Now, friends, remember, James, this James is the brother of Jesus. He himself was an eyewitness to the grace and mercy and welcome Jesus demonstrated in his earthly ministry. He watched Jesus welcome sinners. He watched him love them. He watched him move toward those on the margins. He heard Jesus say with his own ears, come unto me all you who are weak and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. He was there when Jesus taught about the radical nature of the kingdom of God. James knew that grace was always the default. That grace was always at center, always at core. And that God's grace through Jesus Christ was sufficient for James. And it was sufficient for the church, even in the midst of flux even in the face of conflict, even in times of great uncertainty. And friends, the good news of the gospel this day is this. That same grace is sufficient for us. That same grace will see us through. That grace is sufficient for us to meet the flux and the conflict and the uncertainty of our time. And like James, my hope and my prayer is that all of us would show up to our families and show up to our communities and show up to the world bearing this grace. In times of flux, in times of conflict, in times of uncertainty, we need more people of grace. We need more people of mercy. We need more people who forgive. We need more people who include. We need more people who listen. We need more people who are gracious. We need more people who do not make it difficult for those who want to know God. And so may we be those people. May we make those decisions for the sake of our own salvation, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of the world. Amen.